the, the title of this section of scripture is warning against adultery. And so we're going to be hitting on the topic of God's beautiful gift, which is going to be uh, involve a, a topic about sex. And so I want to invite you parents in the room. Uh, if, if you have young kids, uh, it's up to you. It's your discretion. But we do have Melissa in the back of the room. She's our kids ministry director. If you want to check your kids in the kids ministry today, it might be a good Sunday for that. I do feel like the topic is appropriate for middle schoolers and high schoolers. If you have that age group, they're probably hearing this stuff if they're in public school anyway. So they're hearing it. What better place for them to learn God's design for these things than in uh, church? But if you do have kids, Melissa will wave her hand back there. She'd love to help uh, get them checked in. Uh, while that's being handled, thank you, Melissa, for that. want to recommend a few resources for you. We're going to get into, again, God's design for sex, sexual sin, those types of things. So I have a, a few resources for you this morning. Uh, one is a book by Gary Thomas. I think it's the best marriage book I've ever read. And it's actually going to be kind of the, the center point of our marriage retreat next weekend that we'll be having. Uh, it's called Sacred Marriage. There's a great chapter in here on uh, sex between husband and wife. Uh, another one, a topic of, uh, I think, urgent need in our uh, society is a book written by Jackie Hill Perry. I love Jackie Hill Perry. It's called Gay Girl, Good God. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry was a practicing homosexual and was saved through Jesus. She's now married, has kids. This is an awesome book. I would really highly recommend not only reading it, but uh, through like apps like Audible, uh, Hoopla, which is like a, a library connected app. She actually reads the, the story herself, and it is powerful to hear Jackie Hill Perry read through uh, her testimony and the way that the Lord has changed her. The last one that I wanted to recommend to you is a book by a man named Ed Welch called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Uh, this is a workbook that I have that I've actually worked through with some guys uh, have struggled with different uh, sexual addictions, and so want to recommend that book to you if you're struggling uh, in that way. And obviously, the resources of the elders, deacons, and myself in helping folks walk through those issues. So a few recommendations uh, for you this morning. With that being said, let's look to the Word of God. We're going to read all of chapter 5 in Proverbs. God's Word says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own will. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God sees everything. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. The, the tragic neglect I think we find of, of a um, teaching on this beautiful gift we're going to hit on this morning. I make this statement is there are few topics as taboo in the life of the church as that of sexual relations, and especially in the manner uh, of the type of sexual relation that God is for. Okay, God is for sex. Unfortunately, our churches are often known more for what we are against rather than what we are Four, okay, parents, I want to address you first. You may be alarmed about your children's ears, or you may squirm in discomfort over sexual sins committed in your past life, or perhaps even in the present. I assure you, there's hope in the gospel. And parents also, especially as you discern this sermon, remember a quote, I shared this quote on Facebook a few weeks ago from Pastor Shane Pruitt. In regards, he was speaking in regards to uh, the Grammy Awards show, which I don't want to get into that whole debacle, but it was kind of crazy. And he says this, the Grammys were a sobering reminder that there's plenty of people willing to disciple your kids for you. Kids can either be discipled by celebs or celebrities, ideologies, politics, or they can be discipled by you, the gospel, and the church. Don't subcontract out discipleship to the world. The quote can be easily applied to our own discipleship, even more so than just our kids. I have but 35 to 40 40 minutes on on a Sunday while news, social media, television shows, and music have your ear for much of the week. In that light, I must speak to this beautiful gift from the Lord because the world won't hesitate to teach you the way that they think about it. They won't hesitate to disciple you on sex and sexual relations. Now, we're going to use a framework this morning as we examine uh, this text. I didn't put this in your notes. Maybe you can write it down if you have a pen and your your bulletin handy. And I think this is a useful framework for us to think about any sort of ethical or moral issue, especially in this day and age. How does a Christian approach ethics? Because we're going to get into some ethical questions this morning. This is how we approach, okay? It's a kind of four-step approach a process that we can go through as we think about these things. One, point one is we begin with the Bible. Okay, if you want to write that down, we begin with the Bible. Then the teachings of Scripture, especially the, we don't just go to one specific section, but we search the Scriptures on how it speaks to different things, right? The Bible's not just categorized like, well, right here's the whole section on this ethical issue and this. No, it's spread all throughout Scripture so that you can read and discover. So we begin with the Bible. Then the whole teaching of Scripture, the whole counsel of Scripture informs this. Now, some of you may roll your eyes when I say this word. It informs our theology or our doctrine, what we believe. And it's based from Scripture. So we have Bible, theology, which leads to this, ethics, Okay, how do we think about right and wrong? How do we determine what right or wrong is? Bible, theology, ethics, but ethics are really useless unless we do what? Put them into practice. 
We apply them within our lives. So Bible, theology, ethics, practice. Now, this process I've borrowed from a pastor friend of mine. His name is Justin Anderson. He kind of taught on this on a a pastoral uh, cohort that I was a part of this last year. Bible, theology, ethics, practice. We can take that kind of thought process and apply it to any sort of ethical issue that we face in culture or where the Bible speaks to it and think through it in those terms, Bible, theology, ethics, practice, which brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Sex is a beautiful gift from the Lord and must be practiced within its God-given boundaries. This gift is, is evident from the very beginning of creation. As Adam worked about the garden prior to the fall, sin hadn't entered into the creation yet. We're back in Genesis 2. He couldn't find a, a helper suitable, right? In this point in time, in the story, he's naming the animals, and he couldn't find a suitor helpable, hel- or a, somewhat, a helper suitable for him. Got those words mixed up. God being rich in his grace, mercy, kindness, and his plan, right? He had charged Adam in chapter 1 to, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So his plan was to fill the earth, Caused Now God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. That's where we pick up the story in Genesis 2, 22 to 24. And the, so God takes the rib from Adam and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, now I want us to think of these words. I believe Adam here is excited and celebrating. This beautiful woman is in front of him. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The instruction of God's word says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And man and the man and his wife were both naked. And at this point, they were not ashamed. A beautiful picture of this God-designed relationship. From the outset of, of creation, God's beautiful gift and plan of multiplication is founded upon the one flesh union of a husband and a wife. This is prior to sin entering the creation. Sex is not a side effect of the fall. Rather, it's a beautiful gift from the Lord. But sin does. If we go to chapter 3, Genesis 3, sin enters the creation, and even this beautiful gift has been blemished by sin so that we must do this. We must guard our hearts against all sorts of sexually immoral behavior. Solomon dedicates many chapters and sayings of Proverbs to warn his sons of perversion. Five, six, and seven of Proverbs all kind of cover this topic. Proverbs 5, 3 to 6, for the lips of a forbidden woman. Now, I want to pause here, okay? Ladies, you might just kind of turn it off and say, this doesn't apply to me, okay? Remember the context. Solomon's talking to his sons, but if we reverse the language, it could go either way. Okay, the, the, the same thing applies to both sides. So ladies, don't, don't turn your ears off. It applies to all of us here this morning. So we, you can just kind of flip the language around in your head as we're reading through this. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. The warning is clear. 
Okay, every good gift from the Lord can also be a major downfall within our lives, okay? That's the, really the heart of sin and idolatry is that we take the good gifts that the Lord gives us and we twist them and we elevate them to, to the level of being in the place of God and we worship those things. I think our culture it has a pervasive worship of sex. We elevate created things we elevate beautiful actions above their God-intended purpose and design, right? It's when we, when we elevate our wants and desires above the good plans and clear instructions of God, we then fall into a trap and a snare of sin. When we fail to uphold our God-glorifying purpose on earth, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we then, if we neglect that, we glorify ourselves, right? You're going to worship and glorify something. We are, we are creatures that are created to worship. And when we don't glorify God, we glorify ourselves, our wants, our desires. Then we, we, dwell, we, we delve into, I'm going to say this word, ungodliness. Because we're not doing what God intended for us. Which leads then to unrighteousness. And so let us therefore look at this beautiful God-given gift in its proper context. And then, and so we're going to look at the positive and then we're going to flip because there's a lot of sin entangled in uh, uh, sex. So our first point, we see a covenant and we see the gospel image. We see the gospel image. A central idea within scripture is that of marriage Connection, joining together, a bond, an agreement to uphold one another's best interests. Okay, the, this marriage relationship is the only right, correct context for sexual relations. Did you hear me? The marriage relationship is the only appropriate context for sex. And this connection is central to covenant language of the whole of Scripture. Gary Thomas says it this way, quoting, this isn't in your notes, says the Old and New Testaments use marriage as a central analogy, right? A picture, the union between God and Israel in the Old Testament and the union between Christ and his church in the New Testament. It's why the the idolatrous seasons of Israel's history were equated to this, to adultery against God, when they sought after false gods, assurances of surrounding pagan nations, and idol worship, they broke God's covenant. Okay, when, when we engage in sexual sin, we are, if you're married, you're presently breaking your marriage covenant. If you're not married, whoever you will eventually be married to, you're breaking the covenant of what will happen down the road. In a sense, Israel, this is what happened. They cheated on God, to use a modern way of saying it. And so we're negative, 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 right? Positively now, we must see the joining together of man and woman in the one flesh union as reflective of our covenant relationship with God. This is not just a physical connection, but a deeply emotional, spiritual, and theological one. And we witness the marriage union as a central analogy of God and his people, the church. Paul makes this connection with the, the new covenant of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. 
He says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul's drawing on the language of Genesis chapter two. Now Paul's gonna pull back the curtain and he's gonna give us an understanding of what this means redemptively. Paul says this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to this, Christ and the church. The Bible teaches that marriage in itself is reflective of God's redemptive plan. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, the covenant involved in leaving mother and father and holding fast to a spouse is, is, and becoming one flesh is a portrayal of the covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage exists most ultimately to display the covenant-keeping love between Jesus and his people. Therefore, it's safe to assume that the marriage relationship consummated as the one flesh union is yet another reminder of God's covenant love for his people. Do you see now how we make this conclusion of Bible, which then informs our theology? Do you see how we're tracking through scripture to understand how this fits together? Jesus would say in his ministry, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This reflection is foretold in Isaiah back in the Old Testament. Looking forward to the new covenant, Isaiah 62.5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you see the connection that Scripture is making? Sex is a beautiful gift from the Lord when enjoyed in its proper context. It is good. God's intended design, okay, very clear. God's intended design is that this gift is enjoyed within the one flesh union between husband, man, and wife, woman. Okay, there are two genders, and it's enjoyed within that relationship, under the covenant of marriage. And yet we understand that there is, now within the room, some of us may be squirming or uncomfortable. We understand there's likely not a sin so pervasive and and hurtful as that of sexual sin within the lives of God's people. And also, just open your eyes and look around in our culture, within our culture, right? It has invaded our culture. You can't drive by and see some, uh, a billboard without any, you know, a sexual innuendo or turn on and have a commercial on TV. There's some stuff where it's like, what in the world? A kid's movie, right? I know what they're talking about right there. Which brings us to our second point, warning and consequences, the appeal and devastating effects of sexual sin. You guys okay? Everybody tracking all right? Good. Sexual sin is pervasive and enticing in all historical times. We've seen it, you know, you think about Paul's writings in Romans chapter 1. He goes through a whole section there, I believe, after verse 18 or 19, where he kind of goes through the sin of the world. We see it uh, definitely evident in that time period. And yet, I think we can agree, it is especially pervasive and enticing in the current time frame that we're in. Never in history has has humanity had such access to explicit material in anonymity, okay? Meaning, like, no one knows you're looking at it. Never in the history of our country has 
uh, sexual immorality, right? Those actions which the Bible calls sin been more socially acceptable and also not just acceptable, but celebrated than now. I can't think of any other point in history. Proverbs 5, 7 to 14. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. We can say this, keep your way far from sexual sin. That's what Solomon's getting at here. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Not a good picture, is it? The Bible is clear about the devastating effects of sexual sin. And yet the allure of it is is so difficult to resist. It, It occurs here under the cover of a private browser on your phone or a veiled flirtatious conversation in the break room at work. Or the pursuit of of the past, you know, high school love that you had that just happens to pop up on Facebook as a suggested friend, and then you begin to message each other, and the and the flames are rekindled. The effects are devastating. I've done more counseling as it relates to sexual sin, adultery in marriage, pornography addiction, than any other issue I've ever faced in ministry. The effects are devastating. Sexual sin ruins marriages, devastates families, and ruins our health. Okay, people that are, that are addicted to pornography, this is scientifically proven, that their brains go through a physical and chemical change. We're sold the idea that sex is, is a necessity for life, right? How can you live without it? It's the modern day equivalent of food and water and air. You'll die if you do not get it the way that you want it. But that simply is not true. And as the instruction of the proverb conveys, we must resist and fight against the temptation of this particular type of sin with all the tools available to us. Here's the tools that the Lord has equipped us with. Prayer. Scripture, discipleship, okay? Men and women confessing and upholding each other, encouraging each other. When you fall short, they're lifting you up. They're reaching out a hand to pick you up. Discipleship leads also to this, accountability, right? Self-discipline, knowing the things that you are weak around. How many times I have sat with people as they work through trying to reconcile their marriage because one of the the members of that wedding covenant has committed adultery and they say, man, I was just there with that person and it just happened. No, it didn't. You knew you were weak in that area and you put yourself in that position to fall. We have to be self-disciplined And also, positively, we have to practice, if you're married, we have to practice this beautiful gift within the context of marriage. Because the effects of sexual sin are devastating to the fabric of our God-given design. Every vice list of Holy Scripture includes sexual immorality, 
The Bible clearly teaches that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God because it's, it's impossible for the Holy Spirit to be within someone who continues, hear my words correctly here, okay? Who continues to willingly indulge in the perversion of God's intended design, okay? Don't mistake what I'm saying. Some of you may shut off right there and be like, I don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. I'm not saying that if you sin in this manner or you struggle, did you hear that word I used? If you struggle with sexual sin, that you are not a Christian, but rather if you continue on in unrepentant sin, it can be concluded that the Holy Spirit is likely not in you. Right? These are sins just like every sin of eternal consequence. There's eternal consequences for our actions and our sins. Paul says as much. Now listen to the way this verse is divided up. It's beautiful, okay? It's gonna get, some of you are like, man, this is really bad news, bad news, but we're gonna get, you know we're gonna get to good news, right? Y'all been here long enough, you know we're gonna get to good news. Paul says this, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Bad news, right? We all agree with that. We're gonna get to some hope. You guys ready for some hope? You ready for some beauty? You ready for some goodness? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you say with me, good news? Give me some good news, right? There is hope. Point number three, hope. Jesus our deliverer. There's hope. You may be sitting right now listening to this sermon. You're like, I don't want to hear this today. You don't know what I go through. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know how I've messed up in the past and how it just continues to haunt me over and over and over again. This message is for you. There is hope in Jesus, our deliverer. He's overcome the world. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but what? Take heart. I've overcome the world. He's overcome. Here, let's apply this to life. Jesus has overcome every sin that keeps us distant from God the Father. Jesus has done this. When he came to the earth, when he took on flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He invaded the darkness of sin-filled hearts and shined his light. That's why he's called the light of the world. The Pharisees and scribes were, were dumbfounded that Jesus would interact with supposed sinful people, the supposed sinful people of their generation, right? The, the two groups they often focus on was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Luke 5, 30 to 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his apostles, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Church, I'm a sinner, and I have repented of my sins to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came for me, and he came for you. Jesus came to save those who are troubled with sin. Right? Let's not read this passage incorrectly. He said that he did not come to call the righteous. Right? Some of us in the room may have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We think we're righteous and good. We don't need much of God's help outside of, like, say, uh, I'll just pray for my health. Or pray that I get a leg up in the job interview, that, I, that job that I need really badly. But the Bible is clear. The Bible says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
What's it getting at? We all need Jesus. We all need to find hope in a relationship with Christ. We need this, his righteousness to cover our sin. Jesus came for such a people as this, not the prideful and arrogant who in their own unrighteousness reject the Savior, right? If we look to the New Testament, the Gospels, much of the the Jewish religious leadership at the time of Jesus's ministry rejected him. Rather, he came for those who would do this, humble themselves and recognize their need for his righteousness. Let's put this into practice. If you struggle with sexual sin, you have come to the right place this morning. You don't need to clean yourself up before you come to the church. You're in the right place. Come to the foot of the cross. Confess your sins. He is faithful to forgive you. Jesus came for those with a deep realization of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's why Jesus commended the woman who broke the expensive perfume jar to wash his feet with her tears and hair and perfume. She understood the depth of sin that separated her from God the Father. And what did she do? She put that faith into action Right? She was willing, she willingly gave everything that she had to rest at the feet of Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that you don't have to continue to be enslaved to your sinful desires and inclinations, including this sexual sin. Hear these three words We are free. We have freedom in Christ. 1 John 2, 1-2 is such a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture. I love the words that John begins here under the inspiration of the Spirit, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? He's encouraging him, don't sin. Hear me this morning, don't engage in sexual sin. But, John says, if anyone does sin, right? The expectation that we will sin in the present, that we are going to struggle past, present, and future. Listen to this. This is good news. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, what in the world does that mean? We talk when we do the Lord's Supper here, when we receive communion, we talk about the atonement, right? The covering of our sin with the blood of Christ. Propitiation is a much more rich word than just atonement. This is what Jesus did for you and for me. Through faith, Jesus lived perfectly in our place. He went to the cross of shame. He died on the cross. At the cross, this is what happened. The full wrath of God was poured out upon his son. It was the, Isaiah talks about it being the plan of God to crush him. We can't shy away from this stuff because it it shows us the ugliness of our sin, but the great love, mercy, and grace of God. So Jesus substituted himself for us. 
willingly on the cross, received the full wrath of God and has averted through faith in his work the wrath of God upon our sins. He has covered them so that this is what propitiation means. Jesus took the wrath. He's turned God's eyes from that. He is, through faith in his work, clothed us now in his righteousness. We're not just stepkids that kind of get the leftovers. We're brought into the family. We're sat down at the family table and we're given the family name. The full inheritance. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross. Man, that's good news. Propitiation, wrath to favor, righteousness applied to me and to you, debt erased from my account, paid in full, declared this, I love saying this, not guilty. That's what it means when John says we have an advocate, someone who's sticking up for us. Thinking again in this framework, Bible, theology, ethics, application. What does the Bible teach, right? We've learned what the Bible teaches about God's beautiful gift that he's given us. Then we gain a a theological outlook, right? We connect the teachings of scripture to build a framework of right belief. Our, Our theological framework then informs our ethics or our morals, the way that we live. And then we put those into practice. So now we come to this application, the horizontal and vertical fight for purity. The horizontal and vertical fight for purity. We, we have a, a horizontal and vertical fight for purity in, in our day-to-day lives, moment by moment, every day. God has indeed, I want to declare this, I don't want this to get lost. God has given us such a beautiful gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Solomon says this in Proverbs 5, 15, and then verse 18. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed. I love this right here. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. What beautiful language. Rejoice in your spouse. Love her. Love him. Stop looking for pleasure everywhere else. Stop measuring your spouse up against everybody else's because you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. This is the lie of social media. You think you know somebody. Again, I have, I have an insight into these things because going back, I've done a lot of counseling around this issue. And I'll tell you what, nine times out of 10, people that increasingly put how amazing their spouse is on Facebook over and over and over again, the next week, they're the ones coming in for counseling because it's a facade. So don't believe everything that's going on. Rejoice in the wife, the spouse of your youth. Rejoice in the person that God has connected you with. He's given you a beautiful gift. Rejoice and enjoy men and women. The spouse of the Lord has, has brought to you The fight for purity begins right within your relationship with one another. That's why I say the horizontal fight for purity. Our horizontal relationships would be what? Side to side, right? Which mysteriously, as Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. I bet you never thought of your marriage as richly theological, did you? But it is. And because of this 
our ethical framework now is fleshed out. The question of, of the proper place for sex within society is answered and then put into practice. Paul encourages a fight for purity by not depriving one another from this gift. He says so in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Did you know the Bible encourages husbands and wives to have sex together? Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So Paul gives one instance. He says, if you, if you want to grow spiritually for a season, you can withhold so that you can focus on what? Prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. The Bible encourages sex between husband and wife often so that you may not be tempted to sin. Amen? Guys, I'm telling you right now, if you're elbowing your wife, you better knock it off. Moreover, the fight for for purity looks to our most important vertical relationship. So we had horizontal relationship. Now, vertical relationship would be our relationship with God. It's founded upon, I'm going to keep using this word, godliness, right? The desire to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, the, this pursuit of glorifying him in our lives, which then results in this right living or righteous behavior. This is granted us through faith in Jesus and this gift that he gives us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. This is crucial where we can then uphold this instruction. And this is, I want you to notice, this is father to son, father to child. Proverbs 7.1, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. The new covenant promised in Ezekiel that God's people would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which would then, did you know this? The new covenant implies then, God's word says this, that this spirit would then cause God's people to walk in his statutes and commands. Now I want you to, I want you to think about this. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Let's fix that. My sons and daughters, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. How can we relate to this conversation between Solomon and his sons because of backing up to our hope, Jesus, our deliverer. He is a propitiation for our sins. He has turned the wrath of God away from us. And so God looks on us with favor. He calls us what? Sons and daughters. And he's filled us with his Holy Spirit so that we can be caused to walk, to keep his words and treasure up his commandments within us. Do you see the connections here? Do you see how important these richly theological words are of propitiation and wrath and judgment and the great love, mercy, and grace of God? That we've been filled with the Spirit of God so that we could be caused to walk in His statutes and commands. Okay, simply put, if you don't walk away with anything else, keep the Word of God. Obey Him. We're going to look negatively, positively. Negatively. 
flee, run from sexual sin in all of its forms. There's very few times where I'll just directly say, stop, stop doing it. Pornography, fornication, homosexuality, stop. Positively. That was negatively, positively. Keep the word of God. His instruction says this, enjoy the wife or husband of your youth. Do not deprive one another. Understand that your marriage relationship is this. It's a mysterious reflection of the relationship between Christ and his bride, 